Hello and welcome to Millions of Screens. I'm your producer Leo Garcia, joined via Zoom by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. Today we're going to be talking about some Apple TV Plus cancellation news from a close friend of the pod. Libby's going to lay into Denis Villeneuve a little bit, I think, right? That- I am? <laughs> am I? I thought, I thought you were. I thought, I you thought were. we were collectively. Oh, uh, we will we-, we will collectively be laying into uh, auteurs bemoaning the HBO Max uh, decision. Oh. And then we're just going to talk about Letterboxd and whether there are any safe spaces for television fans to talk about the shows they love. And how they are invading Letterboxd at press. Yeah. This is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. Skipping ahead to the clicker, our recap of the biggest news stories from this past week. It was announced Sunday that Apple CEO Tim Cook realized that Apple TV Plus was making a show about Gawker, helmed by friend of the pod, Cord Jefferson. The show was titled Scraper, and I assume it was going to get into sort of the what was going on at Gawker around the time of uh, the Peter Thiel lawsuits and uh, its eventual filing for being purchased and then having to be sold off in, for scrap parts. But essentially, Tim Cook caught wind of this show and immediately pulled the plug. Now the show is not dead in the water. It is back out for sale and another network could come in, scoop it up and and air and air it. But uh, apparently they were already, they had completed some episodes. When Cord was on the show, the writer's room had closed. Like they had yeah, they- just closed the writer's room. So uh, yeah, they were doing it. They were making it. What were your guys' takeaways uh, about this, um, especially in light of all of Apple TV Plus's recent re-ups first? <laughs> second seasons their uh development slate yeah or lack thereof i mean if we're talking about upsetting precedents here i think that the president of a theoretically unrelated company coming in and killing a show that was already actively very much in production uh is disturbing it's like walt old walt disney coming down and uh shutting down uh wandavision once he finds out because he doesn't like Scarlet Witch. It's just, it's, it's, it, it is upsetting in a core level, not just because I think the show is a good idea. Uh, I think Cord is a tremendous talent. I think uh, it was, it, it, it was, it goes to my theory that the people making the decisions, the creative decisions at Apple TV plus don't know how to make TV. <laughs> But also, it doesn't matter how much they know how to make TV because there is someone always above them with the kill switch. I don't think it reflects well on Apple TV Plus whatsoever. And I don't think it uh, suggests the place is a safe place for creators to bring their wares and, uh, and, and be confident that they will retain, number one, creative control, and number two, the existence of their product. Yeah, in a, in a week when we've been focusing uh, more than ever, I feel, on uh, the relations between companies and talent, uh, this reflects rather poorly on one that is that is still trying to make pathways into Hollywood. Like, it's still trying to prove that it's not just, you know, some giant thing from Silicon Valley that doesn't understand the business and doesn't care about the industry and it's just going to crank out content uh, for itself. 
uh, rather than for you know um, the industry at large or supporting the people who consist of that energy or industry or who make up that industry, and um, you know they've they've struck a lot of big deals with a lot of big names. We know Martin Scorsese and Leo DiCaprio are making a movie over there. Uh, we know our dear dear friend Julia Louis Dreyfus has an overall deal with Apple, and I can't imagine any of them would be happy to hear that as soon as certain members of Apple learn what the show is about or what the show is commenting on or um, what characters or players might be involved in the show, that that could cost them the entirety of their work, that that could eliminate their art and leave them stranded uh, with, with nowhere to put it and, and nowhere to make it. Um, those, those kind of ties are fragile, but they are also extremely important uh, when so many companies are fighting for a corner of the industry uh, and and the voices that people know and love and want to hear from are, you know, <laughs> key factors in whether or not those corners are maintained. So like, I, I again, yeah, I, I can't imagine John Stewart would be happy about, you know, this sort of thing. I would imagine there's some smoothing over going on outside of just HBO Max this week in terms of, you know, uh, big name enough talent reaching out to their, uh, the people, you know, sending them the checks to make sure that they can still do what they wanted to do. And, uh, you know, most of all, I'm just really sad for court. I would be shocked if HBO or HBO Max didn't pick this up. Um, it, especially, you know, a year after Silicon Valley's gone um, for a, a, a writer who who's active in succession second season and then also on uh, won an emmy for watchmen like i'll be honest and say that i was shocked that they weren't the original people who who had picked this show up and i i have to imagine they would rectify that on the bounce to speak to what you were mentioning earlier about kind of uh the particulars of what apple tv plus is allowed to do with their creative the new york times listed a bunch of them in the story they're the ones who broke the the right. um, the gawker story over the weekend and uh, one of the, the all but confirmed comments is that the two things Apple TV Plus will never do are hardcore nudity and China. So they're not going to go after China. There's been multiple reports that they're, they've told creatives to avoid portraying China in a poor light because they have important dealings with China that you know supersede any sort of profit that could come from one measly show. So they don't, they don't allow that to happen. Um, they're also in the, in the works for a Dr. Dre biopic that was abandoned when Mr. Cook... Uh, <laughs> had found out that there that that story would require a lot of violence and nudity and then um one of my personal favorites uh, that i didn't know about until i read the story was that uh, apparently director m night Shyamalan was told to keep crucifixes off the walls in his thriller servant but also maybe for contextual reasons it's worth saying that uh, one of the reasons yeah. that tim cook is so vehemently um i will say against gawker or gawker related uh uh, content um, is that the 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 institute had actually outed him uh, as a gay man um, a decade ago. I think kind of a sore point for him. Um, kind of shocked in retrospect that no one thought of that when purchasing the show. But uh, I guess you can't always research. It's not like the internet isn't forever. Before making these million dollar investments to be frank that's also the reason that cocker no longer exists because they also outed peter thiel and he sought his vengeance uh by essentially backing 
this very superfluous lawsuit with Bubba the Love Sponge and Hulk Hogan, which eventually uh, resulted in Gawker going bankrupt uh, and no longer existing. Well, it does uh, exist. Someone someone does own Gawker, but it's just like in name only, and they want to relaunch. They've been plans to relaunch it, but like it's never really gotten off the ground. Let's segue from one streaming giant behaving badly to another streaming giant just maybe behaving too much. Last week after we recorded, Disney Plus held their investor day and an- announced a slate of shows and movies that seems to extend ad infinitum. Like it feels like it's uh like it feels like we're never gonna be free of Disney related content. Libby, you wrote a little bit about this yesterday based on if Disney can put all this stuff out into the streaming world and not give a shit about awards. That being said, Mandalorian was up for best yeah. drama at the Emmys. And we were all, as we've mentioned, spot, legitimately yeah. concerned it might win. And, and I think I voiced the fact reasons. that if if Marvel were going to have a potential horse uh, in the Emmys race, uh, WandaVision could be it, de- depending on what it how it turns out it could be very trippy in a legion plus way maybe it it, it can do something interesting there yeah Um, listen Catherine Hahn could be nominated but that's about as far as i'm going it's uh it's one of those high concept things it it has a lot of things going against it has more things going against it i think than it has going for it but like as far as uh quality and concept yeah i mean i think it would have been more likely to be a player than like uh like uh falcon and winter soldier yeah falcon and winter soldier uh the obi-wan kenobi show Uh, you know um so i guess to get to get your perspective they did they had this whole slate of shows they released Mm -hmm. uh it was overwhelming libby Mm -hmm. you were you you bemoaned uh i don't want any more star war or something along those lines I, I don't want fair. any more Star Wars. No more no Star, Star Wars for me, please. But as you're watching this, what were you guys thinking in retrospect? I, I was regretting ever being a Star Wars and or Marvel fan. I felt like uh, at some point I must have had a monkey's paw in my possession and uh, things just went poorly from there. I was overwhelmed when I got back to a, a machine and I was like, what is happening? There are, there are 400 television shows now. Yeah, and I, I think that was my takeaway both in the moment and when it was done. I just distinctly remember us spending the last year talking about how Disney Plus doesn't have anything other than The Mandalorian. How they're just like, we've got legacy content. We're going to have some, uh, we're going to cycle in movies from our other brands. And, you know, uh, they obviously premiered Hamilton and Mulan, you know, during the pandemic to help spur some extra interest in the service. But really, it was just, We've got all the shows that families want to watch from years and years ago, as well as right now, apparently. Um, But the future is apparently (laughs) the opposite. So we will no longer be claiming that Disney Plus only has one show. They will have um, the full Many versions of the same show. Right, right. Many, many versions. At the very least, 10 Star Wars shows and 10 Marvel shows. And, you know, from a from a business perspective, this is inevitable. Disney has had an extremely difficult year. They are laying off people left and right and in droves. And the idea that they could green light to this level of excess while they were continuing to do that to, um, you know, hourly workers, uh, you know, lower staff workers, lots of just, you know, blue collar, non-millionaires. 
did film get really upset about that over these weeks? Uh, filmmakers get really upset about Disney announcing all these new shows and but laying off the little guy. It was no? hard for me to keep track, maybe, but it, it was lost in the in the sea of, of news alerts. But again, like th- this, this was inevitable because with success, uh, they do more. And uh, we've seen everybody pivot to streaming, if you will. And um, Disney seeing that as a as a huge profit center uh, and one of their few remaining profitable branches, uh, putting all their eggs into that basket is not surprising. And no, they didn't announce anything similar to HBO Max where they were going to premiere all of their movies on uh, on the service. But they did say that 80% of their content is going to be focused toward Disney Plus, And that's quite a bit. So I... I you know me, I, I'm just sitting there staring at the names that they've gotten to do this and being like, oh, I'm so excited for Justin Simeon that he has this opportunity and I hope this is a project that he loves and I'm sure Lando will be good, but really the best thing that can happen from that is Donald Glover and Justin Simeon spending time in the same room together and hopefully having enough time to discuss something else. And I would rather see whatever they discuss and come up with after Lando uh, than Lando itself. Um, but Disney has, again, kind of mastered the art of tying in uh, respected creatives to their blockbuster cookie-cutter content as a means to make people think that it's better than it is, and they will continue to do that for as long as we buy into it, and it seems like people are buying into it. I'm wondering if it if it works. I'm wondering if Chloe Zhao had a higher profile because she got The Eternals, um, so now when Nomadland came around, she was more of a familiar entity. Like, I, I wonder, like, I, I don't know if it does. I don't believe that it does, but I, I, maybe, maybe it helps. I want to believe that it, it, there is some greater benefit. Um, I know there's a greater benefit in the fact that um, many of these directors would never be working uh, on projects of this scale with this kind of budget uh without disney is and i'm not like i'm i anyone who's listened to the show knows that i'm not um a pollyanna i'm not generally looking for the bright side of things but uh when something like uh 20 star wars slash marvel shows and then 10 pixar live action other things are coming down the pike it's um upsetting and i have to look at something to cling to uh so i don't give up the fight and yet no high fidelity season two (sighs) but we are getting that pamela anderson tommy lee (laughs) series that is true and that will not be on disney plus that'll be on hulu which is a different streaming platform that disney competition by the time it comes out the rebranding could have happened again and disney is the home of pam anderson we should note we should note before we started recording uh news news hit the wire that sebastian stan and lily james will star in a pamela anderson and tommy lee series on hulu we do not know what it's quite about but the sex tape will probably be part of it it's I definitely gotta say, part of it. It's in the log line. <laughs> I gotta say, shocked that this did not come up in Disney Disney's Investor Day call. Last Thursday, Denis Villeneuve wrote uh, a scathing 
uh, op-ed for Variety where he was sort of bemoaning the fact that Warner Brothers did not inform him or any of the other filmmakers of the decision they were making and how awful it is for the world of the film and cinema and and all these other uh, elements uh, sort of using the audience as a uh, as a shield to say that they are being hurt by this uh, as much as anyone else and they're being uh, they're, they're sort of not being allowed to ingest his greatest creation ever in the format in which he wants them to to ingest it almost a direct quote he did say this is his best movie so that's important he did say that dune is his best movie libby i know when we first were looking at this letter i think we all had some thoughts we were definitely shouting at each other on slack uh i personally was yeah, we had some thoughts i personally was angry just about the fact of using you know saying that there's no love for the cinema or love for the audience which seems a bit counterintuitive. Say what you will about how much HBO Max costs, but it is far more affordable to spend $15 on a monthly subscription to HBO Max and watch Dune in your living room than to take the family to a theater. Yeah. Park, buy concessions. Oh, are, are families seeing Dune? Like, is that a thing? <laughs> I think there's a world where families seeing film. Dune. That's going to be a PG-13 movie, though, at least, right? So we're, we're not talking kiddos. We're talking, like, you know, high school teenagers who'd rather All be right, with their family friends. Yeah, we're talking the people who have to pay full price for a ticket. Family uh, scene Wonder Woman 84. So I think there's a lot that we can delve into in this letter. In fact, this could be the meat, but we're probably not going to spend it on the meat. <laughs> but, like, the idea that there is this uh, pretension with, with film and cinema, the idea that his thing is important and streaming is a different thing. He, he does say something along the lines like streaming's great for the things it does, but films are different. And, you know, this has to be seen in the theater. Uh, streaming alone can't sustain the film industry. So, you know, it's streaming can produce great content, but not movies of Dune scope and scale, which I think we all in talking, we're like, I guess that means only movies of Dune scope and scale are cinema, which means most of the best pictures of the year, as people are rating them on lists, are not cinema in Denis Villeneuve's eyes. So like something like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, not cinema. First no, Cow, probably not cinema. Uh, there, there are all these things that this letter does bring up, and this is definitely one of them, that like, if you make a big tentpole picture, you are better than these other things. Suicide Squad 2, cinema. <laughs> Cinema. What did what did you guys think? What what are you what's your takeaway aside from this being bluster? Ben, you mentioned that this might just be 4D chess on Denise's part, where he is just trying to force HBO Max's hand, so they have to make Dune two. Yes, there are there have been four months now, if not longer, heated discussions in the IndieWire newsroom, virtually and uh, back in the day in person. Uh, about whether or not the Dune project would be a successful blockbuster or one of the most egregious bombs ever to hit theaters. Um, now that we know it's not going to hit theaters, uh, the conversation has turned. I do believe that a lot of this article is focused on preserving Dune uh, into the future. I think that him saying that it is his best film uh, is is showing his level of investment as well as his, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to call him a liar, his belief that he's made his best feature yet. Um, I, again, will 
find that hard to believe until I see it. Him declaring that they may have killed the franchise by releasing it on HBO Max, that they may have uh, you know, ended the possibility of Dune moving forward, felt almost immediately as I was reading the words as a sentiment expressed for the exact purpose of, of making HBO Max do the opposite of, of you know, prove me wrong. Otherwise, it's your fault, not mine, that Dune is uh, a massive failure. Ben, Warner Brothers, not HBO Max. HBO I'm sorry. Max is not, not, not going to foot the bill for Dune 2. <laughs> you know, AT&T, Warner Media, Warner Brothers, Disney, HBO Disney Max. Plus, Apple. Listen, I know Casey Bloyce is personally paying for the Dune sequel. So anyway, um, it, it, it did carry that level of... of uh, of strategy for me, I guess, because airing your grievances in public, especially in Hollywood, usually has alternative motives than just I had to say this and put it out in the world. But my 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 biggest other takeaway from this is simply that they should have told him. <laughs> like they should have just told him. Yeah, that, like, that's that's beyond reproach. The fact that they didn't let anyone know is sort of insane. <laughs> I don't think anyone's arguing that this was well. I know. I'm I'm going to let Libby continue to handle the other arguments that I completely agree with, but I will so I will just I will just position it as saying that that as I, I hope I think we mentioned last week that Warner Brothers, that HBO Max, that Warner Media, that everyone involved in this decision did not tell any of the artists. Uh, that this was going to happen and that they consciously let them find out via a news release uh, or, you know, from anybody who just walks up to them or calls them on the phone or, or zooms them. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording about the sort of backlash to the backlash about the letter, which is like for people like us who are going like, it's insane to use the audience as a, as a shield here and say that you're doing it all for them. Especially when he closes the letter by saying like, I stand in solidarity with the 16 people that that this has also happened to, essentially just the directors of these films. These are the people that are hurt, hurt most by this decision. And, and there, there was some talk online about the fact that this is like an, a, a union busting move. I need to make some disclaimers first. First of all, Ben, like I totally get what I totally get your read on that letter. I would actually go so far as to say he releases that letter so he can preempt any like poor reviews, poor performance, poor anything. Mm. It's, it's it's his get out of jail free card for uh, most anything with the movie. I do um, think that can Wait, are you saying the, the reason the movie's bad is because I saw it at home? Yeah. I, I do think that setting a, a high bar before critics can see it um, can lead to problems. But anyway, we don't need to get there. Oh, and like, I, I don't even mean like the, I think it's my best movie. I think it much more like, this isn't what I wanted. And if you saw it how I wanted, then you would feel differently about it. I think it's like, a, it's like building in those excuses beforehand. Um, which, you know, sometimes might be true. I, I don't know if I would have seen uh, uh, Dunkirk, you know, the, like, like Christopher Nolan's film Dunkirk. I don't know if I would have gotten the same experience if I watched it on like my phone, uh, you know, so there, there, there are those arguments to be made. I don't know if that's an argument to be made for fucking Dune, but okay. Yeah. I watched Dunkirk on a plane and I loved Jesus it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Monster. <laughs> what but the I, fuck and I, I loved it I thought it was I, amazing <laughs> I will, it is amazing yes I will say that that anyone <laughs> anyone worth their salt in terms of like just judging the general quality of a film how you see it 
shouldn't shouldn't turn well, sure. from from bad to good. It might affect the 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 temperament of your good or bad, but it's it's we're talking just needles here. I, I am also but. thinking about audience response. If like that film underperforms, if fewer people watch it, if it gets poorer word of mouth, you will see a lot of people talking about um, union busting. That this move on Warner Brothers' part to uh, release the films day and date on streaming was a move to work against unions that have not moved quickly enough to to get quality representation for streaming rights as compared to like theatrical release and how if you are supportive or understanding of Warner Brothers move that means that you're siding with a multi-billion dollar corporation and you're a bad person and you want artists to starve and you aren't thinking about the little guy except this is not a new thing. As we were discussing beforehand, Ben pointed out extremely well how this has been something that's been plaguing television for years. And film didn't care about it then. Uh, it was none of their business. They could have done things to change it, and they didn't. Uh, they could have gotten right on board with um, making those changes and, and making it an issue that they wanted to support, and they didn't. But now it's a problem because it's affecting film. I hate it. <laughs> like this is everything we've been talking about like this is there is this divide that a tv because it is more accessible because it is uh there's so much more of it because uh, of all of these things they are fighting these fights on their own and then film will deign to swoop in when it's a problem for them and then we should all care about it i don't think the warner brothers move was based solely on union busting. I think they handled it terribly. Uh, I think they did it probably because they know how much shit they would get blown back in their face. I think they knew that the second they told one person outside of the circle that it would be leaked to every paper, every AP, everyone in the world with exclusive furious directors making that first, uh, make, saying, having their say first. I think that's why no one knew. And I don't suggest it as a creative model. I don't suggest it, but I see why they did it. Uh, it's not okay, but it's a year. Vaccines are going out right now, but how long will it take for them to get everywhere? How long will it take to, that, to get them in like West Texas or uh, on the, the reservations in South Dakota? And, and, and how long will it take for people to safely be able to see movies in theaters? And like, are we going to shut everything down until then? I don't understand the philosophical argument against releasing these things on streaming. It's not as though they're not still being released in theaters if that's how you want to see them. But it, it, there's this there's this pettiness to all of it that I can't stand. Uh, and and the disingenuous argument of, of thinking about the little guy, uh, I mean, little guy doesn't care about back end profits. Uh, you know, little guy doesn't doesn't isn't invested in in um, box office take. Uh, and what about the little guy of like the viewer? We are very concerned with the artist's right to create and the artist's right to control the medium in which their art is consumed. That's not actually how art works. You create your art, you put it to the world, and then it's not yours anymore because then it belongs to the people who consume it. 
I don't know. The arguments around this are very strange to me and, and I, I, they get me very heated and I apologize. But it, it's just, if you want to think about the little guy, think about the little guy who got laid off from their minimum wage job or that kept their minimum wage job, but they have to go out and risk COVID. So now you want them also to go out and risk COVID to see your fucking movie, like see they can entertain their kids. Uh, like just grow up. <laughs> You're fine. You're a feature film director. You're fine. Um, I don't know that that's, that's probably a very simplistic, uh, take on it. And I, and I apologize for my own uh, ignorance, but it's making me crazy and I'm going to start burning shit down soon. It's not how much you make off of the thing. It's what kind of resonance it has in the world. These movies, they're either going to be resonant and remembered, uh, or they're going to be forgotten uh, because they don't connect and it's not going to be HBO max's fault one way or another. Uh, I think about this all the time now because I have to watch things in so many different ways. And honestly, some of my best experiences with some of my favorite shows are untraditional viewing experiences. Um, on a, on a long road trip of late, uh, my wife was watching an episode of Succession that I'd already seen, and I could only listen to that episode of Succession because I was driving. And it might be the best episode of TV I saw all year, and I didn't see it. Um, one of my favorite movies, if not the best movie of the year, was Steven Soderbergh's Let Them All Talk, which was on HBO Max, and whose opinions we've already talked about in this regard. Um, but I watched that in bed with my wife and the two cats laying at our feet. And it was just this moment of, of family where I was just like, I'm literally holding the art in my lap surrounded by everybody who's like most important to me in my, in my immediate family. And this makes it better. Like this makes this experience better. And that experience can't be replicated in theaters. And there's theatrical experiences that can't be replicated at home, but those experiences are valuable to be on an equal level. Like it's the experience itself. You have to craft it yourself, but the first thing when it comes to the art is it just has to be there and it has to be good. Well, this idea of the blurring line between what is film and what is television brings us to something that we sort of just happened upon uh, in passing, when you happened upon that I happened upon <laughs> in passing, because IndieWire has an official Letterboxd account, and so I was just perusing Letterboxd uh, and looking at what what are the some of the top movies from this year. And when you search Letterboxd oh, for hold, the hold on one second, Leo, I think for some people, I I don't think Letterboxd has quite reached a status of we can't. We don't need to explain it. It's not a Netflix. Letterboxd is... I would say Letterboxd is some combination of the Internet Movie Database, which is a site where it just catalogs all the film and television that have ever been made, and a social media site, where you, a social networking site, where you can friend people, see what their opinions on movies are, see what they watch, look at read reviews. It is sort of a mix of those two things. But in recent years, it's sort of become a hub for cinephiles to sort of, you know, 
find coalesce around the films that they enjoy the most or old films that they revisit and review and talk about. So I was just going going on Letterboxd. Thank you for that, Ben, to, for us to explain what it is. But I was going on there just to see what the top films of the year were. Uh, and I searched 2020 and and for it to be ranked by the highest average rating based on the user's own uh, ratings. And what I found is that the top 20 is increasingly populated by television. And I found it kind of shocking, especially in light of all these conversations we're having about what is film and what is television, whether it is something like small acts, which Libby has described incredibly correctly as a collection of five films they'll be airing. That is what I got from the from the Amazon people. Like that is the to my best of my description. It's five films airing as a collection. It'll be competing at the Emmys and not the Oscars. Yes, it will be competing in limited in in anthology series at the Emmys. It is not a television series. It is not nine, none of the movies are television episodes. Uh, well, there's that. Then there's also then there's also there's also what we were just talking about with Denis Villeneuve and him him saying that you know streaming is one thing and films of his scope and scale are another. But then looking at this list of what Letterbox was serving me as the top pieces of content of the year, so many of them are television. I May Destroy You is in the second spot. I should note in the first spot is a Brazilian music special. That's the highest rating rated thing uh, of 2020. Third is Taylor Swift uh, acoustic sessions for folklore. But, right but, it, but in the rest of the top 20, you have uh, I May Destroy You, Middle Ditch and Schwartz, which was a collection of three improv shows they did on Netflix, The Last Dance, uh, Queen's Gambit, Normal People. Like those are all in the top 15. What do you think about this Letterboxd revelation? What does it say about television v. film? What does it say about, Libby, you, you talked about, what does it say about where where do people congregate to talk about television? I, I mean, I think that's the thing. Uh, you, you know, we, we had a big discussion before we started recording about like what we want to say about this because we don't want to talk about how it says that film is, uh, that TV is better than film. And, it, and it's not necessarily about the blurring of lines. But I think what the, my biggest takeaway from this was the fact that it, it feels like people want to talk about TV and people want to talk about TV the way that people have traditionally spoken about film, which is to be taken serious, uh, seriously, to uh, be able to express their own uh, creative thoughts and, and uh, analysis of what they've watched of what they feel is high quality. They want a place to reflect their opinions on things and to be heard and talk in in an educated fashion. We've seen this a lot. There there have been film specialty sites that have done this from message boards, uh, offshoots of, uh, I know that the former website, The Dissolve has a very active um, commenting community on Facebook long after the site has uh, ceased to exist. It has. It, it it seems as though film, especially cinephiles who are looking for the best in film, have will always find a place to congregate. But a place to just to do that with television has never really naturally suggested itself. Now we talked a little bit before about the Internet Movie Database, where uh, we went digging in their uh, best TV shows of all time, and it was uh, an adventure. Um, but but that is it, one of the things that I think 
television struggles with is that I do feel like it is it is the medium uh, where we're seeing some of the best art being produced, but also there is a lot of shit, which isn't to say that it's it, that, that that's different from film. Uh, there's plenty of shit being made in the film world too. It's just people uh, people really like talking about the shit. Uh, and, and, and people really like talking about their terrible taste. So there, there isn't a lot of places to talk about your quality television, uh, takes online, um, other than IndieWire, but, um, but yeah, so I, I see that leaking into Letterboxd and to me, it says we need, there, there needs to be a better, a better place to host a kind of general conversation, about TV online. So people don't have to go just to like specific subreddits for their, for whatever show they want to talk about there. We can have a nuanced conversation about television as a whole. Uh, one thing I should note is that of all the television shows that are on, or all the television that is on Letterboxd, they only include limited series. So you will see things like Shit's Creek pop up, but it's like a Shit's Creek finale special like a look back or a modern family finale special. They do not include uh, episodes of television or seasons of television. That takes me to a very different place uh, and a very antagonistic place about what film people think is film, which is television, if it's good enough, um, which is infuriating. I do think that, uh, and while I don't know the internal process at Letterboxd, I would guess that limited series is included there because of how many television creators have said, oh, it's like an eight hour movie, um, which is infuriating and not actually true, but. Yeah, and I I also think it does go back to just that, that, that general want to discuss the things with the people who, I don't know, who you want to listen to, like. The audience for the new Pope and the young Pope uh, aren't necessarily, you know, like the general Reddit crowd. Um, and the audience for, you know, uh, I may destroy you is, is you know, it, it's vast and diverse and, and exciting, but it's also a show that's, that's challenging and, and is made for people who will appreciate that challenge. And, um, you know, a lot of the people on Letterboxd <laughs> apparently really loved the what 37 minute short film that was the third part of world of tomorrow like they're going to seek out that niche content and i'm not saying that a lot of these tv shows are niche obviously queen's gambit has has blown up normal people has blown up these are big things um but you want to follow your filmmakers to a certain extent and you know in all honesty that was part of how indiewire transitioned into television it was that a lot of the filmmakers that they were covering were starting to, you know, get courted over to, to TV and they wanted to have, they wanted to be able to continue the conversation uh, in that realm. And, you know, when you are a huge fan of Lenny Abramson, as I know so many of us are, uh, and he goes off to make normal people and then he decides to make conversations with friends you don't want to stop and wait for him to come out with his next movie. You want to continue to have a discussion with people who, you know, are fans of Lenny Abramson and um, you know, letterboxd is right now the only outlet for that, or at least the most popular outlet for that, or for those, uh, those voices, those people, those fans um, and rather one of the more efficient ones and more stylistically, aesthetically pleasing ones. But yeah, I, I, I completely agree in that, the choices that they make for what qualifies as a letterboxed entry 
seem to be gauged on uh, whatever they think is good uh, or whatever they think qualifies uh, as closer to cinema than television. So, Such as SB Nation's History of the Seattle Mariners. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you will see that. Uh, one of the entries into the, in the top five last year was um, the, the, the live Fleabag show that I think was performed at the Royal Opera, something like that. And you know that people are, are, are not necessarily using that, but they're using that, I think, as a placeholder for actual Fleabag, not in like uh, what I assume they did with Schitt's Creek. So instead of ranking Schitt's Creek, because it's not on there, they use the finale special, uh, you know, and, and kind of funnel all of their Schitt's Creek feelings into that. It seems like there is a hunger for Letterboxd to expand and figure out a way to get episodic seasonal television into the mix somehow so that people could rank Breaking Bad and not just El Camino. They don't have to funnel all their Breaking Bad love into El Camino on Letterboxd. Right. Do you know um, how much these nerds would like seeing the, the season rankings on there? Like, like I've got better things season three and then season four and then two and then one, and they're going to freak out. So, yeah. I love it. You, you know how upset people get about those Twitter lit when someone tweets like their album rankings or season rankings. Like I realized that the, the UI is totally different and it would probably be a huge investment to rework all of that, to try and incorporate episodes and or seasons, but I Figure it out. think it would only enhance their their model i I don't know um but at the same time maybe they want a certain class of uh consumer and that is not people who want to rank every season of the real world uh but i don't know of a certain class of consumer exactly it's not my fault that love is blind was the best piece of visual storytelling in 2020. Wow, that's, someone that's, didn't watch Taylor Swift's Folklore, but fine. I did not watch Folklore, the Long Pond Studio Sessions. You're right. I can't accurately say that Love is Blind was better than that. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation, NDY. Our theme music features extras to the classic YouTube video, Bjork Talking Our TV, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson. Our publisher is James Israel. And our executive editor is Ann Donahue. Our favorite seasons of Hannibal are in order. Season one, season two, and season three. IndieWire's Willing to Screens endorses Hannibal, the TV show. Because there's a movie. Yeah. That's, oh, you should have, should have done an ellipses there. So I would have like a pregnant pause. It's different. Hannibal colon, the TV show. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens at Midwest Spitfire at Ben T Travers and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. So leave a review and let us know what you think. Oh, wait, we were supposed to give away the sweater. I forgot. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs> <laughs>